Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reading of God's word. I love the fellowship with our brothers and sisters. I loved the messages of Christ and the gospel. I was also a bit overwhelmed. I remember noticing just the variety of people we had. So many denominations, all coming together to proclaim the same Christ and the same gospel. It was beautiful. On the other hand, I, I sometimes wondered if we were there for Christ or if we were there because we weren't comfortable in our own selves anymore. If there was something else going on and we didn't even feel maybe at home fully with where we came from. Things were changing. This world is baffling, but sometimes I'm baffled even by the, the broader Christian community. In Uganda, it's been difficult to watch from afar all the evangelical words. Can I, can I put it that way? Evangelical words flying across Twitter, flying across Facebook. Um, the result of all of this, to me, is that life seems to be fraught with a kind of confounding complexity, especially when it comes to moral issues. But as unsettling as that is, it's really nothing new, is it? We're still a people with a flesh that's really good at ruining good things, aren't we? I think people can ruin anything. <laughs> And what gets lost in all of this is the simplicity 
of the focus and the goal that God has given us as his people. To acknowledge Christ. We can argue way up here for hours. And and we need to go there sometimes. Sometimes we lose focus on the simple task that God has given us. It is to proclaim a person. Jesus isn't my philosophy. He's not your philosophy either. Jesus lives. Jesus gets to decide who he is. You've heard the saying, keep your eyes on the prize. That saying is there because we tend to lose focus on the prize. We need to stay oriented on what we are called to run for, what we are called to do. You think of a large sailing vessel. They're actually quite complicated, aren't they? There are a lot of very important things to keep in mind when you want to sail on the ocean, especially. But all of those things are pointless if you are oriented in the wrong direction. At best, you'll just reach the wrong place faster. In this complex world, there are a lot of difficult issues that we must address. God has, in fact, called us here as a church to represent Him before this world. And that involves addressing all these things. But we will get lost in those same issues if we do not keep our eyes on the finish line, on the prize. We will become lost in spite of ourselves. At its core, gospel ministry is simply calling on others to come join us in following Christ and acknowledging Christ as the only truth. We are urging others to run hard towards Christ with us. We are depending completely on Jesus and calling on others to join us in that dependence, in that rest in Jesus. And this is because we're commended to depending upon Jesus, a Jesus who lives. A Jesus who created every molecule in this room. He made it. He's sustaining it. The chairs you're sitting on are still there because Jesus is deciding that those molecules are still there. Every breath that you take, you are taking because of Jesus. Jesus matters. He's not an idea. Jesus defines himself, and he even defines us. That is hard for us Americans, isn't it? We want to define ourselves at all costs. But Jesus is the one to define even us. And Jesus alone can give us rest and put our feet on the solid ground that we need. The problem is that we have underestimated and undervalued Christ. We have distrusted him in spite of our words, and we have not trusted in the promise of rest that he has promised us. Matthew is laser focused on Jesus. He could have written his book about a lot of different things and included Jesus in it. There were a multitude of things going on at the time. 
And there were the 12 disciples. And there was this new community that would become the church. Christianity. He could have focused on so many things. But Matthew is laser focused on who Jesus is and what his significance is to us. That's what Matthew wants you to see. Matthew is not at all balanced in that way. He's not balancing Jesus with the lives of other people. He is talking about Jesus and his significance. He begins right at the beginning of Matthew with a detailed genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage from Abraham to King David all the way to Joseph, his father. A messenger of God comes to Jesus' mom and gives him a glimpse of Jesus' importance later in chapter 1 when he says, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Wise men from a distant land become searching for Jesus. They call him the king of the Jews. They want to worship him. Herod, Rome's puppet king, fears him so much that he tries to murder him. He marshals all his resources as a king to kill one baby. John the Baptist begins preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That kingdom is coming with Jesus. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and the voice of God the Father himself calls out and says, This is my one dear Son. In him I take great delight. Imagine hearing God the Father say that. (laughs) Satan's attention is drawn to Jesus. He tries to tempt Jesus with the phrase, if you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, Jesus climbs to the top of a mountain as a new lawgiver to establish and inaugurate his kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus defines this kingdom. He defines who's in it and who's out of it. Jesus says he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. What an amazing statement. Placing himself as the end goal of the law and the prophets? That is is serious stuff. (laughs) These are documents given by God himself, revered by generations and generations, and Jesus says, this is all about me. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus begins to heal people, And this is Matthew's way of telling us and letting us know that Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. Jesus healed to show that he is the true life that cleanses the world of sin, that calms the chaos of the sea, that casts out demons. He is establishing his true kingdom and he's calling his people to come home and rest in it. In chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples to preach the good news to Israel. Jesus is the one to bring God's kingdom. And he will bring God's life-giving presence and get to live with him, to live with God himself. But they reject him. And as we come to chapter 11, John the Baptist sends a message from prison to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus answers by pointing out all the signs and the miracles he's done. He says, these things all point to the same thing. I am the one you've been waiting for. But the people would not believe him. In spite of all these signs, 
Jesus says that this generation is like going to a a marketplace that's jam-packed with people who do not want to listen. They were unimpressed and uninterested in Jesus. They would not acknowledge who he was. So they underestimated him. We never underestimate Jesus, do we? Jesus does not mince words about the foolish consequences of this. In verse 20, it says, Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of these miracles because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? No, you will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done among you had been done in Sodom, they would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for the region of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Those are harsh words. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that there is a severe consequence for not acknowledging him. Enough to say, woe is you. Bad things are coming. <laughs> Judgment is coming. It will be more of a bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than you. Gentile cities. Sodom. <laughs> it will be more bearable for Sodom than for you. And notice Jesus' response, rather the response Jesus is looking for. What is he looking for? He's looking for Repentance. In light of the revelation of Jesus, he's looking for them to repent. He's not first looking for them to stand in amazement of his miracles. He doesn't really want them to just be like, wow, that's an amazing miracle, and just think about the miracle. He's not looking for just drumming up excitement so people can feel excited. He wants them to repent about how they view him. Repentance is turning around. It's changing your mind, going in a different direction. So what are we refusing to repent of? It's to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. Remember John's question? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And Jesus says, yes, I am the one. These people were not paying attention and they were not responding. The miracles were not producing repentance. And the issue was not one of clarity. The signs should not have been difficult for Israel to read. They, they should have been the first to acknowledge Jesus. God had revealed himself to them directly and no one else like he did to Israel. He had told them that Jesus was coming. He had given them his word. How was it that a Gentile city like Tyre or Sidon would repent faster than them. The problem was because they didn't want Jesus. Because they didn't really want to be with God. They would rather trust themselves. They'd rather be self-reliant. They'd rather depend upon themselves than depend upon God. Is that ever, ever our hearts? We find ourselves feeling more comfortable when 
the results match my effort. I feel like I've got that strength, that power to hold things together. I feel okay. When, when, when my life, I can control it, I feel at ease. It's because we want to trust ourselves. We, we will even lie to ourselves sometimes. Just so we don't have to face the reality that we're not in control. We're very, very small. We often want to see the results from the work of our own hands to feel confident. In our secret heart, we want God's ministry to prop ourselves up as well as God. We make a deal, right? You know, we'll do this together, right? Give a little to each other. It also reveals our inward struggle to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. And there is a real, eternal danger that is related to how we view Jesus Christ. How we acknowledge him. He says it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than you. It will be more bearable for Sodom than for you. Can't get much lower than Sodom, can it? Destroyed by God for its sin, and yet even their judgment will be more bearable for those who see Jesus and refuse to acknowledge him. The barrier that these cities have to seeing Christ for who he really is is their own pride, their own arrogance, their own self-importance, their own desire to be self-reliant, to be God, to define ourselves. And in the face of this kind of disappointment, it would be easy for Jesus, you would think, at least if he was like me, to get really depressed. In a moment like this, staring at the darkness of humanity's foolish, delusional, destructive self-pride and arrogance, I'm usually tempted to just despair. Cynicism, feeling helpless, want to escape. It's not what Jesus does. He does exactly the opposite. His whole demeanor is completely different. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, again, at that time, (laughs) Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is your gracious will. All things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal Him. Rather than complaining, like I tend to do, or soaking in self-pity, I'm sure we never do that, right? Jesus turns His attention to His Father, and He praises Him. He acknowledges Him. In the face of opposition, in what must have felt really chaotic... I mean, these are cities that he's trying to minister to. He's doing miracles and crowds are coming. It must have felt chaotic. Jesus acknowledges the goodness of his intentional and sovereign rule in his life. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. 
In the face of this hardship, his Father is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus does not doubt that, even for an instant. In spite of all the false motives of the people he's around, hidden agendas and destructive ambitions, his Father knows and Jesus trusts his Father. He trusts that his Father is exercising his purposeful will in the lives of these people. You have hidden these things. That's a purposeful will, isn't it? You have revealed these things to little children. That is a purposeful will. God is moving his agenda forward despite the schemes of people. How we need to learn from Jesus. How simple is that? <laughs> but we get all complex, complicated. Jesus says, I praise you, Father. Here is the creator of the universe submitting to the good rule of his heavenly Father and trusting his purposes in his life in the face of deep darkness. Humble submission to his Father. Is that your posture? In our lives outside the church, is that what the world sees in us? Within the church, towards one another, is that what the world sees in us? Are you the wise or are you the little children? These little children are Jesus' disciples, those who acknowledge him. They trust Christ in the same way that Christ is trusting his Father. They are not approaching Jesus as the judge of the universe, but as little children in meekness and humility. These are the people who are being made like Christ himself, who are meek and humble. And he calls these kinds of people to himself. These are the people of his kingdom. And so Jesus acknowledges God's goodness in all things. For this was your gracious will. It's a hard will <laughs> to walk through, but it's gracious. Everything God has done is his gracious will. And you know what else that means? It means that these little children who he is calling, who he is revealing Christ to and Christ, Christ identity to, these little children, they don't deserve to know who Jesus is any more than the wise. They don't deserve it. We have a tendency to think of children as simply innocent, at least more innocent. <laughs> but they weren't more innocent. The implication here is that nobody acknowledges Jesus because of the signs because of the miracles, but because the Father reveals Jesus to them. This is what we see in Matthew 16. And Jesus says to, to Peter, who do you say I am? Or he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This has great implication for ministry in, in church life, doesn't it? It should keep our focus on who Jesus is. What is his true significance in our life? We want Jesus, not spectacles to attract people's eyes. 
from God flows grace. And that is why we need to be with God. And where God is, that is where we need to be. And there's only one way to that. And it's through Jesus Christ. That grace with God finds its manifestation to people through Jesus. Notice what Jesus says next in verse 27. All things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. You see, Jesus is placing himself at the very center of the expression and the realization of the will and knowledge of the Father. If you want to know him, you've got to go through Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to the place that you and I desperately need to be in. And the world desperately needs to be in. The presence of God. Jesus, not you and me. The world does not need to see you and glory in what what you are. They don't need to see me and glory in what I am. They need to glory in Jesus Christ. We want to draw attention to him. So in your hearts, do you want to be little children or the wise? Well, The next question then is, can we trust this Jesus? Can we trust his intention for us? Can we trust his heart for us? You know, what we do with authority and power and control says a lot about who we really are, doesn't it? When we feel powerful, what kind of person do we become? What Jesus says here reveals a lot about who he is. Because all authority has been given to him. This is... Isaac, I think, read earlier today. All authority has been given to me. Look at verse 28. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. Come to me. Right away we see this this inviting, generous heart of Jesus Christ. And and by the way, we're not like that. We, We can seem generous until somebody takes away what we really want. We can seem kind until we're in a position to take. And then we become like everybody else, except for Jesus. We tend to use other people as stepping stones. Jesus doesn't need to step on us. This passage reminds us of Proverbs chapter 9, the first six verses. In that passage, wisdom is, is speaking as if it were a person. And this wisdom as a person gives hope to the weak. Wisdom prepares a house and a a lavish meal and it sets a table. And and wisdom invites, it says in one version, invites the naive to come. Another version says invites the simple to come. 
Those who lack understanding and judgment are invited to this feast, to this house that is prepared. In verse 5 of, of Proverbs 9, she says, Come, eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Let your sim- leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And Jesus is purposely depicting himself as the reality of that wisdom personified. In other words, Proverbs 9 is about Jesus. <laughs> Who should come? Not the self-sufficient, not the self-reliant. Wisdom in Proverbs calls to the simple. Those who realize they cannot have the wisdom to bring them there by themselves. So how about you? Have you figured this world out? If you think you have, how did that turn out? (laughs) Are you frustrated with the lack of wisdom you see in people all around you? Are you frustrated with the lack of wisdom in your own life? Have you watched too many YouTube videos of people doing stupid things? Have you realized that the wise in this world, be they religious or political or otherwise, that they don't really have a handle on any of this? Are you weary? Are you heavy burdened? Jesus is calling to you. He says, Come, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. What does Jesus mean by this rest? Let me begin by saying what I don't think he means. He doesn't mean just putting our feet up on a coffee table and chilling out. He doesn't mean finally getting to lay down our head after a long day of work onto a bed. He is about to talk about taking up his yoke. Yokes are for work. He is about to talk about learning from him. At least for us Rattans, learning takes work. (laughs) It involves effort. He means a rest from that weariness that comes from endless, pointless work. An entryway into belonging, into the purpose you were created for, and that is fellowship with God. Remember, at the end of a semester, hopelessly trying to get some homework done in the warm spring day outside, and your grades are basically set, it, was, it felt so pointless. <laughs> it was meaningless. I was weary of the schoolwork. I wanted to go play baseball. It's pointless striving. It's restless homelessness. It's swimming in an endless sea with no land in sight. He wants to give you rest from that. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you this rest. This rest is the end of pointless striving into fellowship with God, and that is the goal of everything Jesus is laboring to do. This is... Related to the rest in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus ceases from his work of creating, not because he's tired, but because he's reached the end of something that is good and its, its purpose has been realized. Like an artist who has realized the purpose of his vision ceases from his work and stares at it and says it's good. He ceases his creative activity. This vision was his glory all... This vision 
was to be glorified through the fellowship of his people. One author put it this way, Sabbath rest occurred after the image of God created in humanity. The day was the point of creation. This day was the point of creation. A reflection of God's glory basking in God's glory. Of creation, the image of God is for the sake of the imitation of God. And the imitation of God is for the sake of Sabbath union with God. For the Israelites, this rest is the reason for their existence as a nation. They are to rest in the land God promised them because God himself would be there with them. Everything that existed was to be found, everything they existed for was found in Jesus Christ. He was their completion. He was their life. He was their rest. And yet they rejected him. This rest then is a calling home. Sorry, it is a coming home and finding Our family is there. It's a ceasing of empty striving. Ceasing from drinking of cisterns and wells that hold no water. Because what you need and what I need is God himself. You don't need God to fix your life. You you, you need God's life. You don't need God to bless your life. You need God's life. And Jesus is the only way to that life. Sabbath rest is about being with God. It's about being complete and whole because we are where we belong with God. The Sabbath purpose is not primarily to recharge us to go do our work, but the fellowship of the Sabbath rest is itself the point. Like God rests from his work so that we can glorify him in his presence, with him, we now enter that rest with him. That's why Hebrews can say we strive to enter the rest. Last in creation, first in intention, the Sabbath is the end of the creation of heaven and earth. But we do not cease from all work. Jesus says next, take on my yoke and learn from me. Yokes are for work. So are burdens. So is learning from someone. What makes this rest difference is that it's the one for whom we are working. He is utterly different and his yoke is utterly different from the world's. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble and hard and you will find rest for your souls. Who in this world is gentle in heart for real? Who proves to be kind like this? Would you rather have the yoke of a gentle and meek Christ or the yoke of this world? What is the yoke of this world but legalism and power and force? And what is the yoke of Christ but his grace and his mercy? I'll take Christ. He is opposed to the proud and the arrogant. But a bruised reed he will not break. Consider the world around us. How often has the true intentions of humanity been shown to be false and selfish? We talk a good game but put us in charge and all sorts of stuff comes out. 
doesn't matter who you are. So let's take on Christ's purpose. Let us allow him to define us. Let his purposes define our purposes. His burdens are restful. And they will not disappoint because in the end we will find ourselves with him and with our heavenly father. We will find ourselves depending on a gracious God who will uphold us to the end. So let us not underestimate Christ. Let us not undervalue him. Let us turn our eyes to him and give him our full attention. And let ministry, the ministry of our lives, because in the church, you are all to do the work of the ministry. That is not doing a church program. That is turning eyes to Jesus. That is your work. Draw attention to Christ. His yoke and his purposes, let them shape us. Those purposes allow us to acknowledge Christ with everything we have. And then let's call on others to join us in what we love. That's what I would ask you to pray for us in missions. It is no different. We call it missions. It's just acknowledging Christ over there. We don't want to go over there and show people how to have a church. I want to worship God with God's people over there. I want to love Christ and acknowledge Him and call on others to join us in what we already love. That's Jesus in John 17. right? This relationship I have with the Father, Jesus says, I, I want my people to join me in that relationship, to see me the way you see me, Father. That's what we want to imitate. Let's call on the world to join us in what we love and what we are trusting and what we acknowledge in our lives. His ways, His life, His priorities. Jesus says, learn from me. Let us not underestimate Christ, but let's draw the attention of the world to Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in some ways it's hard um, to even speak these words because I struggle to even begin to express just how glorious you are. That you would, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, would condescend yourself to even walk among us, to have anything to do with me, speaks of a far greater, far greater person than I could ever be. And yet you've called us to come. You've called us to do your work with you. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve it at all. Lord, forgive us for not acknowledging you for who you are. And empower us to do that. The world see that you are everything. In your name we pray. Amen.